Nicole Galloway has been making her mark on the high-profile state auditor's office, and recently she released a report of controversial dealings in Joplin city government. Galloway joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, eight, seven, six, six five, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Alongside me in our beautiful St. Louis studios is... Is colleague Joe Manis. And uh, continuing on the tradition of Columbia residents uh, traveling to St. Louis to be on our show, we have... Yeah, and also have made it big. (laughs) We have our very special guest here. Hi, this is Nicole Galloway, Missouri State Auditor. Thank you very much for being on our show. We're always very jazzed to have statewide officials on our show because it makes us feel more important than we actually are. I think I made that joke in the green room. I'm going to just make it again. <laughs> that's okay. No, uh, that's right. It, it also proves that maybe your staff doesn't have the greatest decision-making skills. Well, we, we appreciate you having you on. But I think uh, we were talking before the show, you are a St. Louis native. Um, and you, you actually have a very interesting connection to our, our my co-host right here. Which I didn't know until like 50 seconds ago. (laughs) That's right. So I grew up in Fenton, uh, right off, uh, very close to the old Chrysler plant where that that used to be. Uh, And I went to grade school at St. Paul's in Fenton. Uh, But what we were just talking about, Joe, is that my grandparents, my dad's parents, uh, had a house on Clara. And they sold it many years ago. But you also live on Clara. I, I didn't want that out. But <laughs> oh, sorry. So it goes. Bra- breaking news here. But it just shows once again we are now – I am now hopelessly outnumbered by Webster Groves natives. We had uh, Marsha Hafner on the show. She's also a Webster Groves native. Although you're a Fenton native, but Webster Groves connection. That's right. But um, tell us a little bit about yourself, how, kind of how you transitioned from the private sector to, to politics in Boone County and then into statewide office. Sure. Um, and I'll cut off the question right now because I know you're going to ask. I went to <laughs> Ursuline uh, oh, for okay. high school. Okay. Okay. And uh, my family is all still living in the St. Louis area, in the city, county, St. Charles County, kind of all over the place. Uh, yeah, so Ursuline is close to Webster. That's right. That's right. So it was a it was a short drive. And my mom went there and my aunt went there. Uh, but my sister went to Narricks. She wanted to be different. <laughs> But after high school, uh, I went to Rolla. It was UMR, but now it's... Uh, University of Missouri, Missouri Science and Technology. That's right. If you call it Rolla, I think they get really mad now or something like that. <laughs> I Hopefully, they'll give me a pass because yes. it just kind of shows my age. They changed the school since I have been just there. Just sort of like Southwest Missouri State right, became sure. Missouri State University, but continue. Sure. Um, I have degrees in applied mathematics and economics, and uh, I worked for a while as an actuary and then decided to, to change careers and I went to Mizzou for my MBA and uh, I also went to night school at Columbia College while I was uh, getting my MBA at Mizzou so I would have enough credits to sit for the CPA exam. Uh, Became a CPA and I moved back to St. Louis, lived at the Four Corners, uh, Skinker de Bolivar right there by by Forest Park uh, and worked for Brown Smith Wallace, a public accounting firm here in in St. Louis. did worked in uh, the insurance and reinsurance practice, auditing insurance companies large and small throughout the entire country, um, audited internal controls and in, uh, some Fortune 500 companies here and in Germany. Learned a lot. It was a great experience. My husband and I uh, moved back to Columbia 
and I worked as an internal auditor at Shelter Insurance uh, before uh, becoming treasurer of Boone County in 2011. And uh, um, you became treasurer because the incumbent treasurer, Jan Fugit, I think I pronounced her name right because mm-hmm. I know Phyllis Fugit very well. Right. She passed away in 2011 right. and Governor Jane Nixon appointed you to be uh, Boone County treasurer. That's kind of how you leapt into elective politics, although I have to say just candidly, um, county elected offices are not really the most competitive offices. Many people run unopposed. You run unopposed in 2012. It's not really like running for St. Louis Recorder of Deeds or anything like that. <laughs> He's being sarcastic. I think I think if you do a good job, there there are several contested races mm-hmm. in in the in county uh, elections. I think if you do a good job and you build an office that people can trust in um, and they know who you are, I work very hard to let people know who I am, be accessible, um, and show that I you know, that I, I ran a good office, then generally, you know, you're you're more likely to keep that office. Well, my question is, what it was kind of the duties of Boone County Treasurer? Because I knew about like the assessor and I knew that you had to turn over like a personal property check to, I think it was either the assessor or the revenue collector or something like that. What did the treasurer do? The treasurer, um, I managed the county's $100 million investment portfolio. Uh, I protected the county's AA1 bond rating, which we use that rating to uh, refinance debt and issue other debt to save uh, millions of dollars. And I managed the day-to-day operations of banking relationships, cash management. What I would kind of what I would explain to people is um, all the the cash that comes through the county runs through my office. We record it, make sure it's recorded properly and it's protected, um, and then make disbursements, cash flow, the county. Some other things that I did um, outside of the treasury function. Um, uh, I served on the board of Missouri Technology Corporation, which okay. is a statewide uh, organization. It's a public-private partnership that gets money from the General, General Assembly to invest in startups, entrepreneurs, small businesses, things like that across the entire state. Uh, and I was also on the board of the County Employee Retirement Fund. It's called SURF, uh, which is covers 111 counties, about 16,000 participants across the entire state. Now, obviously, St. Louis has a treasurer to uh, Tashara Jones, but the difference is she handles parking in St. Louis. I don't think parking is under the purview of the Boone County treasurer. Yeah, but she has a lot of other tasks, too. The city treasurer has a lot of tasks, too. Sure, sure. We uh, are, Boone County is a non-charter county. Mm-hmm. It's it's a first-class right. county right. Uh, in the middle of the state. Uh, we have uh, People may not know where Boone County is, but our county seat is Columbia. Yeah. We're at the home of Mizzou. Um, and so if you say that, a lot of people spark up and say, I know where that is. Some people, including myself, refer to it as Missouri's version of Berkeley. <laughs> well, yeah. It's this Republican, I mean, I'm sorry, Democratic enclave surrounded by Republicans. Uh, it's interesting. Boone County's politics has changed, I think, even in the last five yeah. or six years. But county government has remained, I think, 100 percent Democratic, with maybe the exception of a judge. Kevin Crane is a Republican. Right. But um, as far as state legislative goes, it's actually become one of the most competitive areas in the country. Now, the state. now are there any other family members who have anything to do with the state capitol or Jeff City? Well, my uh, un- my uncle, Patrick, or uncle-in-law, worked for three governors, which I would say he he has the fortitude to work for three governors. I congratulate him on that. What did he do? Uh, He, let's see, 
diff- uh, different rules. Okay. I don't okay. know. I think you, you're talking about Patrick, Patrick Lynn. Lynn. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Pat- our good friend Patrick Lynn, who also worked for Margaret Donnelly in 2007, 2008, I think worked for various capacities of state government that's right. as he's, well. Yeah, he's been he's shifted around a bit. He's a he's a good guy, but. And, very no, well, smart. that's interesting because, I mean, I think the point I was getting at is that there's all the, – everybody in both parties, there's a lot of connections. Oh, sure. That sometimes go on in Jeff City and somebody says, oh, something, somebody's sister or uncle or niece or whatever. I mean, it it just kind of underscores how Jeff City is somewhat of a and, – and, and to a little bit of extent, Columbia – the, oh, that's right. The political right. climate right. is a little bit. There's all these connections. Sure, sure. A lot of people. I live in Columbia. A lot of people live in Columbia and work in Jefferson. There, City. I think there are several statewide office holders that live in Columbia. Jason Kander and Clint Zleifel relocated right. there. Mm-hmm. So let's kind of get to earlier this year. Um, State Auditor Tom Schweik passed away in February, very tragically. Um, John Watson was appointed as kind of the interim auditor, and there was kind of. I would say, I don't want to say mass speculation, but certainly speculation among reporters like Joe and myself on who was going to take Schweik's place because Schweik had just been reelected to another term. So the person that was going to replace him was going to be auditor for, I think, about three and a half, three and a quarter years, right. which is pretty unusual when it comes to vacancies. In fact, um, the speculation even at one point uh, centered around Clint Zweifel, the state treasurer, I asked him uh, point blank whether he was interested in being auditor, and he gave this very blunt response to me. Do you have any interest in being the state auditor? No. You have none? No. And you haven't been approached about it at all? No. So we'll take you completely off that list. I'm happy being treasurer, and we'll be serving until 2016. I I decided to play that because I think it's a nice anecdote to politicians (laughs) who just hem and haw and and needlessly speculate about things. He was very direct, and I appreciated it. And there was a lot of speculation, part of this in the aftermath of the whole Ferguson. about And and there's there's been onks within the Democratic Party for years over the lack of diversity in their statewide holdings, either running or holding office. So uh, and this had nothing to do with you personally, but, you know, it's like anything else. You feel some of it, even if you had nothing to do with it. Yeah, this was the governor's call. Yeah, this was the governor's call. And under the Missouri Constitution, because it well, it hasn't been changed. I mean, the governor picks. Mm -hmm. And so in this case, he selected you. And so far, you've gotten pretty high reviews. But I'm just interested in kind of your feeling about when you when when did you find out that you were even being considered and then picked and kind of what was your thoughts? Well, first of all, that was a a lot of information. It was. I I understand that. That was a lot. But first, no, uh, let me say, um, you know, I am certainly sensitive uh, to the unusual and and very sad circumstances that brought me into this office. I I am sensitive to that and I I recognize that. Um, You know, it was a tragic loss for Missouri, people that were close to Tom and, and Spence. And, you know, I think Tom was a true public servant who really believed in what the auditor's office can do. Um, you know, I share that value with him. And, and so, you know, I, I um, you know, I, he wanted to hold government accountable. And I share that, share that value. Um, the clip that you played uh, with, with Treasurer's Wifel, with Clint, uh, he's just a great guy. Uh, he's done such a fantastic job in, in the Treasurer's office. Um, 
and uh that answer is totally him. You know, that clip is, is totally him. He's just great. I just appreciated the honesty because that is it is not unusual with him. You ask him a question, he'll usually give you a straight <laughs> right, answer, right, as I'm right. sure you figured out. But continue. And you know, I can talk about the appointment process okay. from from my perspective, right, sure, and that's right. the, that's the only perspective that that I have. Um, you know, it was focused on my qualifications. I'm a CPA. Yeah. I'm a certified fraud examiner. I've worked in public accounting in the auditing field for a long time. I've worked in public service. One of the things um, that the auditor is responsible for, I'm responsible for auditing all levels of government, but much of what I focused on is local government. And coming from local government, I think it brings a great perspective on what an audit can do because we know that you know, local government is the level of government that is closest to the people that people interact with most often. And so I, I, I bring a great perspective on that. So, but did it catch you by surprise at all when the governor called you? I was certainly honored. I, I was surprised and I was honored uh, to go through that process and to be selected. So when you for, when you became state auditor, because you didn't become state auditor right away, I think there was, what, a two or three week window. Right, two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, what was kind of the mood of the office when you came in there? Because obviously these were very tragic circumstances. The auditor's office, like many statewide offices, has a lot of career staffers who have been Correct. there throughout many administrations. What did you kind of walk into when you became auditor? You know, I, from my perspective and in the, in the conversations I had, and I made a point to talk with a, a lot of the professional staff. We have satellite offices in St. Louis, Springfield, and Kansas City, visiting each one of those offices and meeting with people individually to get a sense of the culture and, and where the office stood during this, this difficult time. And the sense that I got is, is uh, people were ready to have the ship steadied and go on a straight path. These are people that care deeply about what they do. The professional staff works day in and day out. And as you said, these are career people. They're CPAs, they're professionals, they're certified fraud examiners just as myself, um, and, and they care about getting the work of the office done. Um, you know, from I think that the, the uh, transition has been going well so far. Um, we're on track to release the same amount of audits as previous years. We've released 61 as of this week. And I think that speaks to two things. One, Again, the dedication of the professional staff. I, I give them a, a ton of credit, um, and, and they deserve it. And two, uh, you know, I think it does speak to how smooth the transition has gone because I am an auditor. I, I have that background, and so I was prepared to jump into the work of the office. Now, you're, you are, as you mentioned, a CPA. There have been some recent state auditors like Claire McCaskill and Tom Schweik who are not CPAs but came from a more prosecutorial background. Yes. Conversely, there were auditors like Margaret Kelly and Susan Monty who were CPAs. How do you think that changes kind of your focus that you have this auditing experience and you you have those magic letters CPA after your name? <laughs> what what type of change in mentality does that bring, or does it not bring any change at all? I I um, I know a lot about the the auditing field, and I speak the same language as the auditing staff, and so we could just jump right in and, and move forward. Um, the perspective I bring, I believe in the audit process. I really do. I think you shine a light on things. You hold government accountable. You are independent. I mean, look, no one is immune from review, and it is my job to go in, make sure that they're following the law, they're following policies and procedures, and shine a light on that and report that to the media, report that to the public, and continue that conversation so taxpayers know what's going in on in their local government, and it's something that I'm passionate about. Now, one of the things I noticed is you're still rating governmental entities from, like, poor, fair mm-hmm. 
good or excellent, which was something that Schweik put in. And I think you're also doing follow-up audits when, right. when there's poor audits. Um, why did you decide to kind of keep those things in place? I think that uh, Tom wanted to make the audit process easier to understand and bring it closer to the people. And I think the rating system gives a snapshot to allow people to understand you know, where their local government stands and what the audit means. Audits sometimes are not easy to understand. They're not intuitive. The audit process is not intuitive. And so I think it's a way to to bring the office closer to the people that you're serving, closer to the people that I'm serving. I want them to be engaged in the audit process. I want them to provide information for consideration during the audit process. And I think all of those things, um, you know, aid in that. The follow-up audits are a way to continue to hold government accountable. I can't tell you how many times after an audit somebody says, now what? Well, it's up to the entity, your local government, your state agency, whatever that might be, to implement those recommendations. But if the report is rated poor because uh, the severity or the immediate attention that's needed on those findings, then we're going to come in and follow up on that and show uh, it's an opportunity for that government to show the people they're serving that they are implementing those recommendations and and doing what they're supposed to be doing. What's been the most difficult or challenging audit that that you have either done or that you had to kind of take over? Because some of these audits take a long time, so I'm sure some of the audits that you released had been started under Schweig. Absolutely, uh, the audit process is long. It's long and it's thorough, uh, and um, you know there's several. That have that have started many many months ago. Uh, just last week, we released the audit of Joplin City Government. Um, that was through initiated through a petition of the citizens. They gathered over five thousand signatures to request that the state auditor come in and and review their municipal yeah. government. And just for our listeners, um, many state audits are kind of done on a regular basis, but there are situations where the governor can either direct the state auditor to audit something, or if you get enough signatures, as in the case of the Joplin city government, that's when there's an audit of that type of jurisdiction, but continue. Absolutely. Uh, The audit work on that started in September 2014 and wrapped up March 2015. And uh, as I said, that we had a public delivery down in Joplin last week on those audit results. And, uh, um, you know, some of the things that we found, it it wasn't focused on immediately after the tornado, right? Mm -hmm. That in May 2011, you know, a lot of things were going on that needed to be addressed right away, uh, and that was not within the scope of our audit. Mm-hmm. What we looked at were things that occurred months and years um, after the tornado and uh, policies that weren't that weren't followed, procedures that were not in place to protect the taxpayer, mm-hmm. and the long-term mismanagement of public funds. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that, because I had been following some of that a little bit about how, for example, they contract, I think, with a master developer That's that right. kind of... I don't want to say scammed the city, but basically promised a lot of things and didn't deliver. It seemed like a really bad situation, especially for a government that was reeling from, you know, devastation and a lot of a lot of uh, things that they had to do. Tell us a little bit more about what you found. It appears that the request for proposal process, RFP process, they put out bids for a master developer. It appears that that process favored uh, a certain master developer, Walsh Bajali, and the city uh, 
administration and, and uh, government did not have policies and practices in place to make sure that that was a fair and impartial uh, bidding process. After that bidding process and and the uh, and Wallace Fajali was selected, um, the contract itself did not adequately protect the city um, uh, and. and protect the city funds. And in the end, the city ended up spending uh, $1.5 million and no development occurred two and a half years later under that master developer. Now, if you look at in contrast in the rest of, of Joplin, there's schools were built, right. hundreds of homes, 43 businesses relocated into the, the disaster area, all without the assistance of a master developer. Mm-hmm. So our office found that um, that process was flawed. Yeah. Additionally, there were um, millions of dollars uh, from FEMA grants and state grants and insurance proceeds that are waiting to be claimed years and years after um, after the tornado. And these were projects, again, it's not immediately after the tornado. These are projects that were completed in 2012, 2014, 2015. And those are funds ready to be brought into Joplin to serve that local community. Did you get a sense that maybe the city government just was not equipped to handle this type of situation? Because I am at, Joplin is not a small city. I think it is about 50, 60, 70,000 people, but I don't think that they were probably prepared to have to deal with a reconstruction project this massive. Was it just that the administrators and the city council just didn't know how to really handle, you know, contracts and, and, and things of that nature. What do you think was the cause of all of this? I don't, uh, you know, the what we gathered from the audit report, that there was, um, a, in many instances, outside of the tornado situation, um, that there were not following proper procedures. For instance, change orders on public works projects were close to a million dollars. Mm-hmm. Now, change orders are supposed to be small things and small changes in projects, but they were signing change orders before the contract was even signed with with that with the contractor, um, and they just didn't have any purchasing policies in place or weren't even following the ones they had in place. They didn't have change order policies in place. So again, this is long term outside of the immediate mm-hmm. um, occurrence of the tornado. Now, do you foresee any sort of prosecution out of this? Um, just so our listeners know, in some cases, the auditors have found uh, cases of misdeeds, and really, it often falls to the local prosecutors whether anything is done. Right. Um, so, in this case, how, do you have a sense of how this is going to be handled? Uh, we had to take the unusual step of issuing subpoenas to get testimony and information, documents, and records that were not retained for the for. Um, some of the purchasing policies and decisions that were made on behalf of the city council. And uh, one, when, in any audit, when something rises to a certain level of concern, it's referred to state, federal, or local uh, law enforcement agencies to notify them of the information that we found and then for them to determine if there's any criminal violations of law. The auditor's office is not a law Correct. enforcement no, agency. I think people realize that. And so when there's things that arise to the level of CERN, we'll, we'll notify appropriate law enforcement agencies for them to take over and determine, hey, are there things here that rise to the level of, of criminal violations? Now, this since since the Joplin City Government, I think, got a poor rating, you are going to follow up, I think, yes. next year. Yes. Did you get a sense, because in all state audits, there's always response of the right. auditees. Did right. you get a sense that the 
city government was amenable to, to changing their policies or did you get resistance from some of their findings? No, they um, were very responsive to the audit. We had worked with them for months and months um, to have them understand what was in the audit, what was contained, um, and they started making changes along the way, uh, even before the audit was released. And their responses in the audit um, say they're either making steps towards implementing some of those or we'll work on that in the future. We want them to succeed. I want them to succeed. And the, the audit itself gives concrete recommendations for them to implement to show, hey, we are being transparent. We're being accountable. We're following the law. Um, and what our follow-up audit will do, we'll work with them to develop a time period for which they can say, you know, a reasonable time period to rec- to implement those recommendations. And then we'll come back and say, Are you in the process? Have you implemented those and report those uh, findings to the public? Now, a couple of other things that I think are in your Ballywick, is that the right word? Ballywick, I'm not sure, but that are more local of concern is uh, Senate Bill 5, which is coming actually uh, later this week on Friday. We're recording this on on Tuesday just for our listeners. What's going to be the auditor's responsibility under that bill? And what do you foresee happening over the next few months and years when that goes into effect? Yeah, I think um, Senate Bill 5 is part of a broader conversation regarding municipal court reform. And my office has two roles in regards to this. Um, One, my office is responsible for creating rules that will implement some aspects of Senate Bill 5 regarding uh, reporting revenue from minor traffic violations and certifying certain procedures that the courts are supposed to have in place. Yeah, just so our listeners understand, Senate Bill 5, uh, among other things, massive court changes, among other things, it will restrict the percentage of a community's budget that can come from court fines and fees. Specifically traffic fines. Correct. And, And the reason why the auditing process is so important is um, first of all, if they go over that 12.5% in St. Louis County, for example, they have to remit that to the schools. And if they don't end up doing that, I'm pretty sure that there's automatic disincorporation elections on the table under certain circumstances. Right. Under certain circumstances. So, right. I mean, um, it's when does that process start to where they have to start turning in their financial reports? Is it next January or is it like on Friday where they have to start <laughs> turning this in? That's a great question. Um, the law becomes effective on Friday, but the financial reporting element of the percentages doesn't start until January 1, 2016, or the date after that their fiscal year starts. Okay. And what my office is responsible for is creating rules to help municipal courts implement or, or follow this law. We're, we're, in, we're implementing those rules. I want to have a transparent um a rulemaking process to get input from uh, constituents with varying concerns or or perspectives. Um, we'll file the rule on September 1. It will be pr- with the Secretary of State. It will be printed in the Missouri Register, but we'll have it online. We're going to hold a public hearing in November, November 2nd, um, so we can gather input and consideration for the rulemaking process. We gather all of those comments and we respond to those. Um, so, you know, I, I want to have that inclusion. So, and so, then by the end of the year, mm-hmm. we'll have a, a, a rule in place. And I just want to ask, like, as far as what what do you think these rules will entail and how do you think it would affect cities to 
be able to comply with these laws? The the rulemaking um, is first of all, there's two there's two different parts. One is the revenue percentage mm-hmm. for mi- minor traffic violations. How to turn that information to that and, and report that information to the office. We look at that. We turn it over to Department of Revenue, and we notify if there are um, you know if there's concerns or if they don't even file that information at all. The other thing is certifying procedures. Uh, that are outlined in the law. For instance, they have to have an alternative payment plan. They have to have electronic payments, um, some other different things that the courts are supposed to have and certify that they were in place over the over the past year. Yeah. And we gather that information. But what this what it really does is it provides a different additional ways that the auditor's office can hold municipal um, governments and municipal courts accountable. Mm-hmm. Back last October the municipal court initiative was announced. And this was before the legislature uh, started to address this issue through the legislative process. Now that that is law, we have some additional ways that we can hold them accountable. But we are auditing more municipal courts. Um, I'm putting additional resources to that, not just the ones that were announced last October, but all municipal courts that we are auditing are going to have that additional level of review. uh, for instance, we pull tickets, pull a sample, review them, make sure they have gone through the proper procedures. But we also look to see that in the in the information that's reported to the attorney general for uh, their annual reporting, is that information correct? You know, we don't really have a way right now to check that fully. That's not part of the attorney general's responsibility. But that can be done in, through the auditing process. Um, you know, part all of this is to say that. Uh, you know, there's there's some people, there's some Missourians that have lost faith in their in, in government and their municipal courts, and through the SAUDIT process, holding them accountable, showing them they're following the rules, that they have this additional certifications in place, um, that we can restore trust and faith in in the court system. Now, will you need to, or do, or do you plan to ask for any additional staff to kind of oversee this implementation? Which, I mean, there's certain provisions of, of Senate Bill 5 that are going to take years to put in place. Yes, it will take years to put in place. Certain provisions will. Um, but we're shifting resources and, uh, and, and just putting additional resources or more resources towards municipal courts. And, and I think this is a first for the show, shifting gears slightly before we get into your political future. When I posted a, fid- a, a picture of the fact they were doing the show, somebody on Twitter asked uh, me if um, – the St. Louis Recorder of Deeds audit is being done and what the timetable is that. Uh, We were joking about Recorder of Deeds before, but I believe that um, there was an audit announced of Mm -hmm. that a few months ago. What's kind of the status of that? Yes, that audit uh, started in February of 2015, and that was by governor's request. Uh, My authority to audit municipalities is limited, as you said before, to petitions and governor request. Uh, we wrapped up that field work in July. The audit period that we're going through is the end of their fiscal year, the end of June. So we had to do some wrap-up work in July. And that re- report will be issued to the public before the end of the year. Well, um, the, the Twitter user who asked the question now has an answer. Uh, technology <laughs> is amazing. Um, but we kind of want to shift gears a little bit. We only have a few minutes left. Um, I have heard that you plan to run for re-election in 2018. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, how do you kind of plan to take on that challenge? Because running for a county office is a lot different than running for a statewide office. 
it, it can be a grueling, mind-numbing, terrible process, or it could be a wonderful process. <laughs> Depends on who you ask. I know that uh, the former auditor basically ran unopposed, and he seemed to be having a good time when he was doing that. Um, what's kind of your expectations for the next few years? Certainly. I wouldn't have accepted this position if it wasn't something that I was committed to and something that I wanted to do for a long time. Uh, my focus has been on getting the office in order, running a good office. And, you know, I've had an opportunity to meet uh, in this position, meet people from across the state, have opportunities that I wouldn't have otherwise as, as county treasurer, um, just given the different responsibilities. And I'm, I'm really enjoying that. I mean, part of this is just meeting people, talking to them and listening to them. I like to make decisions uh, based on information and, and lots of information. I think if you have an absence of information, sometimes you know, you, you have to have all that information to have a good outcome, a good decision. Um, one of the most fun things that I have done is talk at Missouri Girl State and Missouri Boy State. And after talking at Missouri Girl State, which again, I wouldn't have done if I um, weren't in this position, most likely, uh, uh, a young woman sent me a thank you note. She took the time to write out a thank you note for for me speaking there about um, you know, negotiating for yourself, standing up for yourself, you know, what it means to be a young woman and, and succeeding uh, here. And uh, the, the fact that she took the time to do this just meant so much to me. This has been That's been the best part of this so far. Now, as you know, although this didn't affect your office directly, there's been a lot of turmoil about the climate, the perceived social climate or fraternal climate in Jefferson City. Uh, I mean, this goes back decades, but it's been highlighted the last few months because of ac actions that have resulted in the resignation of the House Speaker and uh, a prominent state senator, one from each party. Um, as a woman serving in a statewide office in Jefferson City, I think you're, course, the, are you the only, you're the only statewide officer who's a woman right now, if I'm not correct. mistaken. Yes, correct. But, but often there have been. Mm -hmm. Is has there anything you've observed or the fact that you, you know, were lived in Columbia. Were, is there anything that you had observed about either the climate in the Capitol just in general regarding women? I mean, we're not talking just about interns here, but you're a young woman. Uh, you may have, people may be talking to you. I'm just kind of interested in your perspective on all this. You know, the, when I have spent time in Jefferson City, it's been in a position of authority, and that just separates me. It's just a little bit different. Um, but you know what we're talking about here, and this is a great this is a great question. What we're talking about here is a culture in which women are reporting that they're being harassed and discriminating against, and they don't feel comfortable reporting it. And uh, when others turn away, when they see it. And from my experiences in the private sector, this is completely unacceptable. That culture is just completely unacceptable. Yeah. Well, we were talking, I think, um, with Gloria Brown, who was in the private sector. She was a VP at MasterCard. And she basically said the same thing. Right. Some of the things that are transpiring right now would get someone fired immediately from the, the corporate community. That's exactly right. And every company that I have worked for or have worked with, well, you, you know, you work with a lot of companies when you audit them. Um, and, you know, they just wouldn't be tolerated. Have you encountered any of this yourself or have like staff people or others talked to you about this since you've been in your position? Uh, they have not talked to me directly about this. And, um, you know, we are auditing the House and the Senate right now. 
Oh. And this is, um, and this is a regularly scheduled audit. It's it was part of the 2015 um, audit plan, and part of what we look at we look at compliance with laws like the Sunshine Law, um, policies and procedures that includes personnel policies and other purchasing policies, any of the policies they could yes. possibly possibly have, and we also look at. Um, results of prior audits. There was an audit re- that was done in 2013. I think it was released in early 2014. And look to see if those findings have been implemented since the last audit. It's mm-hmm. always the starting place. Mm-hmm. And there were concerns in both the House and the Senate regarding personnel policies. Um, the Senate paid close to $22,000 for the National Conference of State Legislators to come in and review their operating uh, practices. And one of the things that that, that independent report found was that um, they didn't have conflicts of interest policy in place or it, needs to, it needed to be enhanced. Grievance policies need to be enhanced and training on for, for Senate and staff need to be enhanced regarding personnel policies. The House uh, side also had um, some issues regarding personnel policies, additional vacation, and some some pay issues. So, you know, as, as far as we, that's where the role, that's where the role is, I think, for the auditor's office in all of this. Um, so will you be looking at, like, Interim policies or I mean, we look or at that sort of thing? I mean, we'll look at we look at policies. That's that's part of of what an audit is is looking at policies, procedures, and compliance with the law. That's what that's what the job is. Now, okay. I um, you know we're going to be thorough. Um, it'll it'll take a while to go through all of this, um, and you know I'll withhold judgment until the audit results are in. Yeah, and it's kind of a moving target because I know right. the House and the Senate, at least the House, is is trying to draw up new policies, including like an a quote unquote omnibusman to mm-hmm. deal with complaints. So it could be a situation like what's happening at the recording of this podcast could be different three or four months from now, sure. something like that. So sure. will you be looking at sexual harassment policies and that sort of thing? And that's as it's included in personnel policies, yes. Well, okay, looking down the road, the state auditor's office, there's been at least two recent state auditors who eventually ended up being governor. Uh, Schweik, uh, at the time of his death, was running for governor. I mean, looking ahead, uh, I mean, you're young. Um, any thoughts just about the fact that you – our hold an office that often has been used as a stepping stone to higher office. Any thoughts about that? Sure. You know, I'm looking at, I'm focused on what the office is doing now. I'm focused on 2018. You know, I have said that I'm running for that office. Uh, and, um, you know, I think that it speaks to what the auditor's office is and the responsibility and the esteem that the auditor's office has that so many people have been successful. Yeah, I, Kit Bond was auditor before he came became governor. I think he was like 33, 34 when he yes. became governor. Uh, John Ashcroft was auditor briefly before he, I think, lost the auditorship and then became attorney general, governor, U.S. senator, U.S. attorney general. And Claire McCaskill was auditor and then became U.S. senator. So there is there is a track record for that. We'll have to have you back on in 2024 when you're running for president or something <laughs> like that. But for now, we'll, you'll, we'll keep you focused on 2018. Thank you so much for coming on our show. It was a pleasure. Thank you for your time. I appreciate yeah. it. And uh, for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And how would we follow both you and the auditor's office on Twitter? Mo Auditor News and Nicole Galloway. Thank you very much. <laughs> Until next week. So long. So long. So long.
Time to get a season to the cold ground Take some time to grow anything Before it's coming to an end yeah. Before you put my body in the cold ground Take some time to warm it with your hands When it's coming to an end